Hello and welcome to Unmute with PRCAI, a unique podcast series that seeks through conversations with business leaders and change makers to understand the narrative of a bold new India. This podcast is powered by Ad Factors PR, and I'm Nirith Alba. At various points, I've been a TV journalist, director, producer, anchor, and educator. Our guest today has had a fascinating career, and just when you would have expected her to retire, she has begun a second innings as the chairperson and CEO of the India operations of a $26 billion company, Salesforce. Arundhati Bharacharya, welcome to Unmute. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Okay, let's cut straight to the chase. What persuaded you after a 40-year stint at the State Bank of India, a bank that you joined in your early 20s and were the chairperson of at the peak of your career, to join a multinational in your 60s? I understand that you took your time saying yes, but you were eventually persuaded. Share with us how that happened. Uh, Well, uh, you know, this is a story that I've told often enough, so most people will know about it. The year after I retired, I was on gardening leave for a year. And uh, throughout that year, I spoke at various occasions to various people, including school children, college children, investors. So I spoke to a lot of people, and especially amongst the youngsters, there was a lot of curiosity about my having spent 40 years in one institution. It's not something that today's youngsters quite uh, you know, relate to. I obviously told them that I had a number of very different jobs in the bank. The bank doesn't have a single kind of job. It has multiple roles and I was in multiple roles. So it did seem like I was doing uh, you know, a lot of different things. And though it was with the same institution, it still didn't appear any less of a challenge. And I think that's what youngsters want. They want challenge. And uh, But I told them that their careers would possibly be longer than 40 years with the advances in medical science and the way things are going and the awareness about health. People would be far more energetic. And if you even see the people who are retiring today from our own bank, they look younger and younger. And they are full of energy. So it was the same where I was concerned. I thought that I had a few more years that I could easily do something in. And I was telling all these uh, youngsters that, you know, they needed to unlearn a lot of things and, you know, relearn and uh, literally upskill themselves and they would have multiple careers. Now, I've always believed in uh, walking the talk, so to speak. So when this uh, opportunity came up in the initial phases, of course, I rejected it outright. I didn't see any reason why I should disrupt a a very good non-executive portfolio that I had assembled and take up something like this. But then, you know, as time went on and they kept persuading, I thought to myself that this is one occasion when I can actually walk the talk. I can actually show that this can be done, that you can change careers even at this stage of your life. And that, you know, age we keep saying is is not something that is, uh, you know, of the mind, it is of the body. But, uh, well, it means I seem to have a, a little bit of energy still. And so I thought, you know, why not? Let's try this out. Of course, you know, added to the fact was the uh, also the reason was that I have always been very interested in digital and in IT. And I believe very, very firmly that an enterprise that didn't have a very strong IT backbone would not be able to survive in the coming decades, mainly because things are changing at a very rapid pace. 
and you cannot be agile and nimble unless you have a very good IT infrastructure. And infrastructure doesn't necessarily mean that you actually have the servers on board and things like that, but you have to have a mindset, a mindset that allows you to adopt new things as they come about and to bring them to market in a very agile and nimble fashion. And I know that uh, Salesforce was doing all of this. They were at the cutting edge of the customer experience. Again, something that I had been pushing very hard in the bank for a very long time. And uh, so, you know, it seemed to match in many, many ways. And then I found out that it was a very values-driven organization. They had an office uh, which was called the Office for the Ethical Use of Technology. That's an incredible transition, Arundhati. Okay, basic question. How different is the job you do today to the job you did at SPI? So, you know, it's very different and yet very alike. And the reason why I say it's very alike is because in both the organizations, the customer is the person at the center. And in both the organizations, they are service organizations. One is purveying financial goods and services. The other one is purveying, uh, you know, IT goods and services. So in a way, centrally, they're very similar. But if you look at the rest of it, it's very dissimilar, obviously. Because there I used to, when I went in, I think the average age of my workforce was 47. Here, the average age of the workforce is 30. I made it 31. But other than that, they are young. Their way, the cadence that you have in the private sector is far more frantic. It's a cadence that you really have to follow in a very, very strict way because much of your take-home salary depends upon the variables pay that you make. And the variable is dependent upon the quantity and the quality of business that you bring. That was not the case with the public sector. The public sector also had a cadence, but I would say that cadence was not equally focused or equally frantic. So yes, we had to make quarter end numbers, but uh, I think the way we arrived at the numbers wasn't as scientific as the way we arrive at them over here. Over here, for instance, you know, I have uh, enough software to tell me which account executive is at which stage in which opportunity. And therefore, you know, I get a guidance on a daily basis as to what my numbers will look like. And this is based on, you know, whatever is being input in the system by the account executives. We didn't have anything similar in the public sector. In the public sector, when I came with uh, about numbers, uh, it would always be mostly intuitive, not based so much on facts. And I don't know whether you remember, as a result, when I was giving guidance at the investor calls, I used to give a guidance regarding the direction, but never regarding the numbers. Because if I was giving the numbers, I would actually be guessing. I wouldn't be having the exact number that I could talk about. However, in the public sector, and you know, Salesforce is a publicly listed company in the US, they come with numbers because they're backed with the technology to give them those precise numbers. Okay. So yeah, there are differences. There are a lot of differences in the way we do things, in the way we appreciate the people who are, uh, you know, doing well, in the way we try and ensure that everybody comes up to speed, you know, there are many more things that, you know, the way in which we take the workforce along is very different from the way we do it in the public sector. For instance, you know, in the private sector, in this company, when I first came in, I was told that I would need to do a unconscious bias training 
before I did any interviews, okay, of my people for promotions or for hiring. And I was quite surprised because, you know, I'd been doing this for a long, long time, okay. But I took that particular training and I was surprised to find that I also had unconscious bias against my own gender. These are unconscious, but they are there. And unless and until you go through these trainings, you never uncover them. And it's important for us to uncover those because then you become conscious of it and you consciously try and avoid it. So I think, you know, there are many things that we can learn from the private sector. But similarly, there are a lot of things that you can learn, learn from the public sector. In the public sector, for instance, all of the work that we did, and believe me, we worked really, really hard. Wow, thank you for that comprehensive answer. Arundhati, you've been credited with leading the digitalization of a solid old school bank. And you pulled off this remarkable feat in just four years. Uh, what were the challenges you faced in bringing about this transformation? I think the biggest challenge that I had was convincing people that uh, we needed to go digital. Because the understanding of what is digital was still very low. I had people coming to me to say that we have internet banking, we have mobile banking. What more do you want for digital? We are digital. But, you know, digital is very, very different from having internet banking and mobile banking. So, you know, it was, it, it was a long journey convincing people that we were not where we needed to be. So I had done something like setting up seven branches that looked entirely different from anything we had seen. So these branches were also built in malls. Normally, that's not the place where we have the branches. The branches are normally, you know, my father used to joke that if a pawn shop closes down, State Bank of India takes it up. So, you know, that's the way we had the branches. But these branches, they looked absolutely different. They had a lot of screens that you could play around with. They had tables with screens that looked like out of Star Wars. They had little cubicles where you could talk to uh, an expert across the screen. Uh, they had an uh, enclosure right in the front, which was 24 by 7 by 365, and which allowed you to draw cash, deposit cash, deposit checks, print your passbooks, do your other requests through a multifunction kiosk. So, you know, these branches look different. And we even made sure that the people who were in the branches, they were youngsters dressed in a very, very casual, different manner. And you could actually walk into any of these branches and in 20 minutes, you could open your account by using your Aadhaar. So we wanted to show what, you know, digital could do. And I recommended and I persuaded a lot of my staff to actually visit these malls during uh, their weekends and play around, let their children play around. And if they felt convinced to then tell their customers to go visit these branches, because I wanted them to understand what digital, what is the power of digital and what it can do for you and what's the different level of experience that it can bring. And believe me, I think, you know, that sort of brought in a lot of awareness of what all we were missing out. And then, of course, you know, in respect of my entire top management, we had a, a offsite in Lavasa where I got in all the you know, consultants to come and show us what was the state of banking and where they expected banking to be in the next five years. And then we flew all of them down to Bangalore. And I had one of our organizations there curate a number of fintechs, about, I remember, eight fintechs presented to us to show them where the fintechs were going. And I think, you know, after all of this, 
there was no dearth of buying. And at that point of time, it was the leadership team that was coming to me with ideas. You know, my ideas were sort of only just the, 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 just the seed, but, you know, they were really germinating it. They were telling me we could do this, we could do that, we could bring in the marketplace, you know, all kinds of things. Suggestions for what the names could be, suggestions of what the color palette should be. You have to get that buy-in and then you have to give people space, and which I was more than willing to do. So, you know, as people got their space to bring about their new ideas and new ways of doing things, I think our journey became that much faster. You also pushed for and managed the breakthrough 1% outlay for CSR at SPI, something that had never happened before. That's quite something. How did you do that? Actually speaking, since the time I had joined, SBI had always put 1% towards CSR activities, always. This has nothing to do with the Companies Act, so it was not my doing. However, what I found was that because we were doing it from within SBI, we were not able to really collaborate with larger organizations. And this is a substantial amount of money. Okay, What was happening was individual branches were being asked to take on activities so that they could connect with their community, which is a very good thing. At the end of the day, the branches need to have that connect with the community. But it is very difficult to ascertain, you know, what is the impact that you are making if you don't collaborate with bigger organizations and then measure impact. Now, if you have 24,000 branches doing little, little things, how do you measure the impact? How do you make sure that things are really being used for what they are being used? So, you know, we had, for instance, a program where on Teacher's Day, every branch was asked to connect with one school and give 10 fans. Excellent initiative because it was pan-India, it covered everybody. But the fact of the matter, a year later, if you went and checked, you wouldn't know whether some of the fans were working, whether they had been dismantled, whether somebody had taken them away. How do you create lasting impact was my you know my intention and that's why the only difference that i did is i created an sbi foundation and for that i had to really and truly you know petition the regulator time and again because the banking regulation act didn't have a provision for a foundation though many of the private sector banks already had their foundation they hadn't gone and taken permission but we being SBI, we felt we needed to sort of let the regulator know whatever we were doing. But, you know, a major portion of whatever we were doing, we started doing it in collaboration with others so that we could take on larger projects, which couldn't be taken on otherwise, and the impact could be measured. That's quite something. Sometimes the paperwork is what is the most difficult part, the redoing of an act. And not being able to set up a foundation when you're supposed to be doing CSR. So so it's pushing at all levels. The public sector at which, at the level at which you worked is known to be susceptible to phone calls from politicians to disburse loans to certain people, transfer employees to certain places, and the list goes on and on and on. How did you navigate these pressures? So actually speaking, you know, frankly, I think the pressures during my time were much less, given the fact that things had gone very wrong. And the banks were all, you know, struggling at that point not to give loans, but to recover loans. Okay. So the pressures were definitely much less. The other thing that I realized is that even though requests come, uh, the requests sometimes are made because somebody or the other at that point of time 
uh, you know, needs to prove that uh, they are making the request. But there was very little pressure to actually, you know, follow through on it. Let's move on to your present assignment. In an interview, you said that when it comes to technology, there are fewer points of conflict between the U.S. and India. There's a sort of symbiotic relationship between the countries in a manner of speaking. Can you elaborate? Well, I would say that, you know, everybody realizes today, for instance, that we are sort of dependent on each other. While, you know, there is a lot of research going on in the U.S. and research sometimes needs lots of resources, which we don't have. But I think we have something which many other countries don't have, which is the brain power and the manpower. Uh, we have a depth of talent in India which is difficult to find in most other countries, uh, merely because of our demographics. Okay, as I said, demographics can be good, can be bad. This is one of the good things of the kind of people we have. We have youngsters. We also have a particular demography that is attuned to the digital age. Uh, in one of the Salesforce surveys, we actually found that, you know, if you look at people who are digitally enabled, or enabling themselves above 80, 80 years of age. India is the number one country there. So we seem to have some ingrained uh, you know, DNA that helps us uh, become comfortable with digital pretty early. Uh, during the pandemic, my aunt, who's 94 years old now, because we stopped taking newspapers, she started reading her newspapers on the desktop and we taught her how. Today, while we have gone back to the physical newspaper, she refuses to because she finds reading it on a desktop much easier. She can increase the font size. She can read back issues. She doesn't have to retain them. She finds it much more easier to navigate on the desktop. So, you know, that's the kind of people we have. So I think, you know, we have the people power. The U.S. has the resources. There should be far less conflict between the two in finding ways of collaborating, especially in IT, which is something that is changing at a, a tremendously fast pace. Given how fast AI is moving and evolving, uh, what are Salesforce's plans to enhance your offerings using AI? So we are actually bringing in the GPT layer, what is called the AGI now, into every one of our services. So we will have sales GPT, service GPT, marketing GPT, all of it, we already have Einstein GPT. Einstein is our prediction engine, the AI engine. It already has a GPT layer. So we are going to ensure that we bring the best of these into the services that we already have. So, you know, it, there are ways and ways of doing this. The GPT layer will do a number of things. First and foremost, it will protect your data from going out. So you may be able to access a LLMS, a large language model, but your data will not be used in order to train that. Okay, we can do that. Similarly, you know, whatever is the result that the, uh, that, the, that the AI puts up to us, the GPT puts up to us, we can actually check that to see whether there are biases, whether there is anything, any content that could be objectionable. So all of that can be filtered out at that level. So, you know, there will be a layer, an Einstein GPT layer, that will look at all of this to ensure that whatever we are giving as output is as good as it can be while ensuring that your data is protected. You must have been asked this question a dozen times before. How do you see AI evolving on the lines that it takes away jobs? 
Are you concerned about the sheer pace of its evolution and unforeseen consequences that this entails? See, nobody can really look at a crystal ball and say how things will evolve. However, you know, if you go back to history and if you see any of the industrial revolutions, every time when there was a quantum leap in science, we all thought, you know, jobs would disappear. Okay. However, what it really did was it increased productivity, it increased efficiency. Yes, it increased consumerism as well, but there were no loss of jobs. More and more newer types of jobs were created. So we are already seeing things that are getting done, you know, like there was no job called an AI ethicist, but there seems to be something of that kind coming up. There was no engineering stream called prompt engineering. That seems to be coming up. So, you know, there are new things that will come up. And I believe that at this point of time, we will still need the human being in the entire picture. The human being will not be totally taken away. Now, will that human being uh, be doing everything that they were doing earlier? Maybe not. Maybe they will have what is called, they will become like, uh, the means what is being stated now is AI will be like your co-pilot. Probably that will happen. But at the end of the day, whether it is going to really reduce the number of jobs, we still have to see what, what really works out and how the whole thing pans out. But I still believe that, you know, there is a very big advantage to interaction amongst human beings. Human beings over the millennia have developed as social human beings. Even today, you can do a video conference with a doctor. But doing the same thing when the doctor is sitting in front of you is materially different. Even now, as we are talking across the virtual medium, if this was being done in front of a live audience, you know, the amount of energy I would feel and the amount of energy they would feel would be entirely different. So while, you know, the virtual medium empowers us, I think it adds on. It doesn't take away anything. Like I told you about the newspaper, we don't really need newspapers anymore. But I continue to have a bigger and bigger newspaper bill because I find that I'm subscribing to more and more of them. Why do I need physical papers? But I like them. I like to get my newspaper in the morning. I like to have it with tea and coffee. Now, whether the next generation will have it or not, whether they will just, you know, look at the uh, screen instead, that's still something that's out there. But the fact of the matter is, that I do believe that the human interaction is something that cannot at this point be replaced. Whether it can be replaced at some point in the future, maybe. Nobody knows about it. Uh, but frankly, that's what scares me, like it scares everybody else. But I think, you know, the human beings will have their own way of finding a way around that. Okay. Arundhati, you've been in top leadership roles now for a large part of your professional life. That's right. How do you practice leadership? How do you practice it? Well, you know, if you talk about leadership, I think, you know, two or three of the things that that I always feel is very important is that leadership actually gives you certain amount of power. It empowers you. And the job of a person who's empowered is to empower others, is to enable others. So, you know, the way I practice leadership and my leadership style is different when there's a crisis and when there's no crisis, maybe my style was different during COVID, it's different now. But the style that I have is I try and put together a vision. I try to get my people to buy into that vision. And thereafter, I sort of allow them their space 
to actually bring that vision to life. I have found that to be the best way of doing things. What it does is it empowers a lot of people to do things simultaneously so things move much faster if you are doing that. You should remain in the background as the enabler because quite often, you know, something or the other, they will want to sort of have some consultations on or some ideas about or they just want to bounce off an idea. So you should be that piece which really, you know, pushes others forward in order to do the right to the, to do their best and who helps in enabling them to do that. I think that's the way that I have always practiced leadership. It's a very collaborative style and it is a style which is not very, you know, it's not a heavy handed style. It's a light touch style. Uh, but frankly, I find that it works. Let's do a quick rapid fire round now. Um, just stream of consciousness. I'll just throw a few words, phrases, and please respond to them. Brand India. How can we improve it? Well, we need to keep delivering. I think, you know, Brand India as such has quite a bit of fan following abroad. In fact, it has more fan following abroad than it has in the country itself. We are too critical of, of ourselves, I think, sometimes. But where I think we have not really been able to showcase ourselves is in the execution of the many things that we have the potential of doing. So I think Brand India is all about execution. Okay. India 2030. Well, we should definitely be very close to being a developed country, if not one already. That would be my aspiration, and I'm sure that is everybody else's aspirations. China 2030? China 2030 may be, you know, they may be undergoing changes. I think, you know, the pressure of the population at some point or time or the other sort of comes through. And uh, the kind of control that you have, central control, is very difficult to maintain over a very large period of time. So I would think, you know, there would be definitely quite a few changes that will happen in China. Okay. The U.S. 2030. The U.S. 2030 needs to reinvent itself, I think. You know, and there, there is enough and more that they can do. They have the resources. They need to really and truly change much of the infrastructure, which obviously has become dated. And as that happens, you know, their GDP will grow. People will get into more and more, you know, getting, getting people to do the jobs is basically their problem right now. So they'll have to solve for that. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, that country still has a lot of potential, which probably, you know, they just need to take care and go after those potentials. But they will still be very, very material in the whole world order. Uh, Generation Z? Well, Generation Z, I think, is actually far, uh, you know, more misunderstood than understood. Some of the people that I have seen in this generation are amazing because they think way beyond themselves. We somehow have an idea that every new generation that comes up are very self-centered. Actually, they aren't. I have seen people really and truly worried about the environment, really and truly wanting to give back. And I'm very impressed about what they can achieve. So I think, you know, we have a lot of potential in there. 
Arundhati Bhattacharya, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining us on Unmute. But before we say goodbye, we asked Deepti Sethi, the CEO of PRCAI, to ask you her burning communication question of the day. Deepti, over to you. Thank you, Nirit. Uh, Arundhati, great conversation. Just one question. You've uh, been a leader at a public sector organization and working now on a private sector. How has public relations supported you? How do you see PR in a public versus private organizations? In the public sector, actually, your PR is you yourself. You do it all on your own. There is no briefing book. There is no uh, person who sort of gives you this kind of support. In the public private sector, however, it's far more, you know, formalized. So, you know, every question people try and determine from ahead of time whether, you know, there is enough data that I have to answer that. Briefing books are prepared. We are given enough notice. So, you know, I think it's a more organized activity, uh, whereas in the public sector, it's far more disorganized. We could do better in the public sector on that, on that front. Arundhati, Deepti, thank you. And with that, we come to the end of this edition of Unmute. Thank you again, Arundhati. Thank you, Deepti. This is Niret Alva signing off till next time. Catch you soon on another edition of Unmute with PRCAI.